uh, Fear of Man, Sunday School happening down in the basement, and then over in Luther Hall, if you're a newcomer and you want to find out more about this church, what it means to be a church, uh, what the gospel is, then we encourage you to go over there to the gospel partner and baptism class, Pastor Clint's teaching over there. So as I said, this is eth- or, uh, Christians in the Workplace. Our topic this morning is ethics in the workplace, so just a small little topic. I'm going to open uh, in prayer, and then we'll get started together. Let's pray together this morning. So Father, as we uh, look together at what it means to be faithful in the various spheres of influence, and specifically in the workplace, we ask, Lord, that you would attend to us now. Give us hearts of integrity. We pray that we would have integrity in such a way that we would live with the fear of God before our eyes, and that that would inform all that we do, even in the various uh, difficult situations that possibly we find ourselves in the workplace. And so give us wisdom for these things, even as we seek to work together on uh, some of these case studies this morning. Help us together that we might be built up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning will be a little bit different, and there's not that many people here. There's like 10 people here, so it might be really different. Um, What we're going to do this morning is, unlike most Sunday school classes, where you'd have the teacher spending 90% of the time and then a few minutes for Q&A at the end, this morning's going to be actually a lot more interactive, and so the crowd goes wild, right? They don't want to listen to me. Um, but we're gonna, I'm going to give a few kind of introductory comments. As I say, the topic this morning is ethics, um, ethics in the workplace. And so I'm going to go through some introductory, and then we're going to do some case studies together. If you don't have a handout, I believe that there's some handouts in the back, and so you'll want to have those, especially for later on as we work together through some of these different case studies. Of course, ethical dilemmas, as you know, all of you know, ethical dilemmas aren't just in the workplace, but increasingly so, it seems like, in this hostile culture, we are faced with many different ethical dilemmas, aren't we? Uh, they're as old as the Bible. You can think of someone like Joseph, for instance. Right? Joseph responding to the advances of his boss's wife, Potiphar's wife. Right? How, how are you going to deal with that situation? Or Moses dealing with insubordination. Or Daniel who was trying to figure out what to do with, you know, living in Babylon. How does he work in the king's court and yet be faithful to the Lord? Of course, we have ethical dilemmas today and that's our topic as I said. Now, um, just, just a couple comments there on the second point, guidelines for ethics in the workplace. So, you'll hear a lot of talk about businesses promoting you know, ethical business, right? We want to be ethical, uh, you know, do, do our business with a, with a posture that has proper ethics, right? So ethics is something that our world maintains to care very much about. So you'll find classes on ethics in business schools, societies devoted to workplace ethics, mandatory ethics education and training, uh, all throughout organizations in the world. So if you, if you work for a corporation, oftentimes they'll have, you know, ethics training. You've got to have certain ethical standards that you operate by. But then when you ask random workers or a coworker or a boss, why is it that ethics matter? You know, what, what are they going to say? Well, there's a variety of responses. You'll get different answers. Some will say because good ethics makes good business. Right? So it's a bit more of a pragmatic argument. Good ethics brings good results. And of course, proverbially, there's something true to that, isn't there? 
when you, when you follow even the natural law out there, that oftentimes it reaps better reward. Um, others might say, well, because part of success is feeling good about what we do. That's kind of more the internal, I want to feel good about, uh, about our business. Uh, or because we don't want to get sued, right? People, well, we, we got to do it the right way because we don't want to have deal with the legal liability that comes with it. So there's all sorts of different answers that you'll find. But as Christians, our answer to that must be first and foremost, well, because we follow Christ. We follow Christ. In fact, uh, in our jobs, as in all we do, we work for Jesus. We are those who are under his authority and who are seeking in all that we do to make sure that the name of Christ is not dragged through the mud. Right? So that when your coworkers find out, oh, you're a Christian, they see that your profession of faith and your lifestyle is distinct and that it lines up with something that Jesus teaches in his word. Uh, so our answer to that question, to the question of you know, why be ethical in the workplace, is much more specific. It is because we are working for the king and we will give an account to him on the last day for how we served him. Uh, or you can kind of spin that out a little bit more. You can say it this way. Your work matters mainly because of what it says about Christ's work in you. Okay? Your work matters mainly because of what it says about Christ's work in you. Your main goal in work is not productivity and provision, though those things are good. Uh, your main goal is to glorify God. Right, so this, uh, this past week, we've been kind of with our kids, we've been working through actually a new little storybook Bible published by Lethos Kids, the Kingdom of God uh, storybook Bible. And the first chapter there was on why did God create you? Why did God create you? Well, God created you for his what? For his glory. Right? Life is not about you. Life is not just about living independently of the Lord. In fact, you cannot live independently of the Lord. Those who think that they can are deceiving themselves. But life is for his glory. It is so that all things would point to him, to his truth. And so in all things, we work to glorify him, to show off how amazing he is, uh, how good he is, how trustworthy he is. So we're working for the king. Um, so ethics and, works ma- and work matters because only ethical work reflects the true king. Shoddy work or dishonest work, oppressive work does not glorify God no matter how successful it may look from the perspective of this world. So you'll recall uh, from Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25 that real success in the workplace is to be what? Parable of the talents, anybody remember that? What does real success in the workplace look like? Yeah, there's taking risks, right? There's an investment. The, the emphasis there is on faithfulness, right? Faithful investment. So uh, real success in the workplace is to be faithful in, in what you are investing in. In other words, by faith, we work in obedience to Christ such that our attitude and actions show off the goodness and glory of our Lord and King. Now, the challenge is that sometimes that path is maybe not all that clear. Right? There's certain things that are very clear in the scriptures, and then there's lots of other things, lots of ethical decisions that you and I have to make that you can't necessarily point to one chapter, verse, and number that says, in this situation, you do this, which requires us then to have first and foremost a posture 
that is one that is constantly asking God for the wisdom from above. Right? Because the wisdom, wisdom is the application of God's word to all these various different areas of life. And it is specifically wisdom from above, divine wisdom, that is going to help us kind of navigate these challenges even in the workplace. Um, so there, there's one word this morning that I think really captures uh, the ambition, the proper posture, what it, what it means to be ethical, quote-unquote, in the workplace. And it's the word integrity. It's the word integrity. So if you turn with me to Proverbs 28, verse 6. Proverbs 28, verse 6. Says this. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Let me read that again. Proverbs 28, verse 6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. So I went and looked up definition of integrity. Integrity says it's the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. So a person of integrity is someone who has strong convictions and who then lives by those convictions, whether it's convenient or not. And based on Proverbs 28, verse 6, the opposite of integrity is what? Crookedness, right? You think of the crooked businessman. Or another way, another translation, we'll translate that as perverse or twisted. It's perverted. It's, it's nasty. It is out of line from what God's moral standard is. Uh, you think of the engineering term, right? Engineers, what are they aiming for in what they do? Well, they aim for structural integrity, right? So, so what is that? Well, it is that when they, design, when, they, when they design something, they want it to be able to hold up under the various pressures, you know, gravity, wind, whatever it might be, all these various pressures, these various forces that come against the object, they want to design something that's going to be able to withstand that, to hold that. And that is then what integrity is. It is in the workforce, you're going to face all sorts of forces, all sorts of pressures to conform to the spirit of the age, to the world. To be a man and a woman of integrity then is to stand firm. Stand firm on principle. The principle specifically of obedience to God's word. Uh, so we need men and women of integrity, not just in the workplace, obviously, but in general. Um, you know, Paul, if you go over to 2 Corinthians 8, flip over there for a moment, 2 Corinthians 8, just a, a, an example of integrity, not so much in the workplace, but actually in, in the church and how money is handled. Paul here in 2 Corinthians 8, he's thanking these folks for the generosity of the gift, and he's encouraging them to give generously. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 21, when he speaks of how the money that was given to them, how it was handled, he says, For we aim at what is honorable, uh, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So, so there was various levels of accountability, even in how they handled this gift. It wasn't that you just sent it with one guy without accountability. Why? Because Paul was wanting to make sure that people wouldn't be able to bring an accusation that they were handling this money in a sloppy manner. And again, this all comes back to what I would say is a perspective of living before the face of God, or as uh, the Latin term, quorum Deo. Right? We, we live and we work with an awareness that 
the Lord sees all that we do. And on the final day, we will give an account, even as believers, even as we recognize we're not going to be justified based on, you know, how ethical we are in the workplace. It is, nonetheless, our desire to please our Lord. So, let me just give you a few questions. I think they're on there, on your uh, handout there. A, a few questions to ask yourself. A bit of a rubric to kind of go through when you're facing ethical dilemmas in the workplace. So the first question, of course, is what clear biblical commands or principles apply? Right, You've got you to start there. This is our standard. By what standard do we live and operate? Well, it's the Word of God. It is the Word of God that is our final authority. We seek to follow Christ. So what clear biblical commands or principles apply? Now, this will rarely answer your question, um, but it's always a good place to start. So what's most clear in Scripture about your specific situation? Okay, so start there. A second question to ask is, what does your conscience say? What does your conscience say? So you've got to try and be disciplined to block out all these kind of competing incentives you might have to act this way or that and listen to what your conscience has to say. Right? Your conscience is a gift. Your conscience is a gift. It is something that is given to you by God to help you discern good and evil. Now, there's a few things that we need to remember about the conscience because it's not, you know, a, a perfect arbiter of the truth. So, first of all, first thing I'd say is nearly always unsafe to violate your conscience. So, in Romans uh, chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So it's unsafe to violate your conscience. It's a sin to violate your conscience. So if, if all of a sudden inside you're, you're feeling like I just, I can't go and do this believing that the Lord would be pleased with what I'm about to do, then the Bible says you've got to stop there. That's, that's the line. Now, the second thing I'll say is that the conscience is sometimes wrong. That's why I say it's not, a, it's not a perfect arbiter of the truth. It's not on the same level as the Scripture. So your conscience is sometimes wrong. So, for instance, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, uh, Paul describes a conscience that is seared, that no longer reacts to what is wrong. Right? And you see this, this is what happens when somebody just continues in their pattern of sin over and over and over and they're being told, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that, that's going to destroy you. And they just keep resisting, resisting, resisting and their conscience becomes seared so that eventually, like they're, they, don't, they don't hear anything. They just do whatever. They're, they're not re- reacting or responding to any kind of uh, anything that is wrong. Uh, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, he describes a conscience that is overly particular, uh, which he refers to not with admiration, uh, but as someone, as someone with high principles, but as a man who has a weak conscience. A weak conscience. Now, it doesn't mean that they're an unbeliever. It just means that their conscience is weak and that they're overly particular about the kinds of food they eat or what kind of you know, festivals or days they observe, specifically in that context. And so sometimes our consciences need to be recalibrated and even educated by the Word of God so that they better reflect the priorities of Scripture 
and the true freedom that a Christian has in Christ. Okay, and this gets to even something of the difference and the distinction that has happened between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There are certain requirements and obligations that you had living under the Old Covenant in Israel that then now in Christ you are free to observe or, or not. Right? And the one who has a strong conscience recognizes then where those lines of freedom are versus where his obligations are to the Lord. So sometimes the right solution to a dilemma of conscience is to better inform that conscience through Scripture. And one way to help do that is to live in a community of believers, right, who have the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit himself, through the Word of God, is going to help you recalibrate and educate your conscience. And he's going to use your brothers and sisters. So, you know, if you have an ethical dilemma, that ought to be uh, a course of action as well, is that you're thinking about it in context with the church. Um, Third, you see there, what good opportunities are at stake? It's helpful to describe the different opportunities, not in terms of their impact on you, but on, but on their impact on your relation to others and your testimony about Christ. So instead of thinking, well, if I say no, I might get fired, and if I say yes, I might feel guilty, say, you know, think to yourself, well, if I say no, I risk making my family dependent on the church when I lose my job, but if I say yes, I risk confusing my coworkers about what it means to follow Christ. Okay, so don't just think about it on, just on your personal impact. Think about it more broadly speaking, and specifically in relation to your witness, uh, your, your public witness. Um, fourth, how will different courses of action make Christ attractive? So in Titus 2, Paul tells workers that one of their main goals in the workplace is to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, of course, sometimes acting as a Christian in the workplace is going to be offensive to people, right? Like Paul says, those who proclaim the gospel are going to have the smell of death. They're going to, they're going to reek in terms of uh, people's perception of them. And yet, acting in obedience to Christ will be, uh, you know, attractive to some. And so, it sh- you should work in such a way that your coworkers and friends all know that you are a Christian, and then the fifth and, and sixth there kind of go together. Um, what do your friends at church think that you should do? And what do your Christian coworkers think? So as I said, involve other believers in these discussions. When it comes to these difficult ethical dilemmas, they should not be decisions that you make in isolation. Certainly not in isolation from the scriptures, but even not in isolation from your brothers and sisters. They can... Uh, they can often have a word of wisdom that they would bring to bear on that situation. Okay, so that's kind of it for introductory stuff. So for the next um, 25 minutes or so, what I want to do is, you see there on your, uh, on the handout there, there's four case studies. Four different case studies. So what I want to do, uh, what I want you to do is, is get together in groups of um, four or five, you know, five, six people, whatever, get into a small group, and I want you to work through uh, the first case study for about five minutes or so, then we'll come back and we'll discuss it for a few minutes, and then we'll move to the next case study, okay? Now, what I want you to do as you go through these different case studies is kind of go through this rubric um, that I had, those questions, right? So ask yourself, what scriptures specifically would, you know, inform my decision here? 
right? So think of biblical passages that would uh, help inform your decision. It's going to be challenging in a small group to deal with issues of conscience, but you might have opportunity to wrestle a little bit with some of that. Um, you just, so, so sort of think through some of these questions together. Think through biblical, uh, biblical warrant for it, biblical reasoning for it. Um, and then what I also want you to do is not just answer the question, but to think about, uh, you know, maybe how you would avoid getting into the dilemma in the first place, if possible, and how you would communicate. So, for instance, in that first question, right, um, the, the office party for a gay wedding. Well, this is becoming increasingly popular. Maybe the, maybe the decision is easy, right? It's, it's easy to understand what to do. The biblical principles are clear. But think through, how would you communicate this to that individual and to, you know, your coworkers? So work together through those things. I'll give you about kind of five minutes or so for this first uh, question. Then I'll call you back together, and then we can, uh, we'll kind of talk about a few things and then move on to the next question. Make sense? Any questions? Okay, so get into groups of four, five, six people, and then, yeah, you might have to move around, and then we'll call you back in a few minutes. Okay. Sounds like there's lots of good conversation happening. I'm sure you could talk about it more. So what do you got? What, what biblical passages would come, come to bear on this conversation? Let's start there. Romans 1. So Romans 1, what, what specifically in Romans 1? Yeah, I mean, he, he talks about, right, these Lord handing them over. So I think verse 32, and specifically, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get a, give approval to those who practice them. Right, so this is in the context of God's judgment is actually seen and when people are approving of sin. Okay, so what, what other passages? Hmm. Yeah. 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 So how might you, what might be something that you'd say, like how, how would you approach the guy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think that's key. Like, you need to go to that individual and treat them with the dignity and respect that they are owed as a human being created in God's image and as one that you, so in this case, if you're the boss, one that you employ and so have a responsibility for, um, for their good, not just to make sure that they do the work, right? So treat them with, with dignity and respect and dignify them with actually having a conversation. Now, you can't guarantee how that conversation is going to go, right? But insofar it depends on you, be at peace with everyone, right? Um, what else? What other, other thoughts, any passages, how you'd approach or communicate this? Yeah. 
Yeah. So it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be surprising, right? Uh, that the boss ought to be, you know, forthright about his convictions. And if he's been working there, you're assuming that he knows. The challenge is, is that there's, there are some people who want to try to get the gotcha moments, right? You know, they're looking for the gotcha moments. Again, you can't control what people do. The, the calling is to be faithful. Uh, it's the same old issue of do you go to the person's wedding, you know, a family member who's marrying a person of the same sex, so-called marrying the person of the same sex, do you go to their wedding? Well, no, because in hosting a party and going to a wedding, what you're communicating is some kind of approval. That's what a party is, right? It's a celebration of some event. And as Christians, well, we cannot celebrate what God forbids as evil, right? So I would say, you know, you don't need to make a spectacle of it. And that's, that's part of going there and approaching the person. You've also got to, though, be prepared for pushback and blowback from, your, from the other employees. Maybe people who, um, they're not homosexual themselves, but they kind of have the world's ideology of just let them do whatever and don't bother them kind of thing. And so be prepared to engage with your, your other employees or if you're a coworker, other coworkers. Um, you know, and, and I'd say just there's a principle of consistency here as well that needs to be at play. Right, so a principle of consistency. For instance, if somebody comes in there, and um, and they've uh, you know they've they've won the lottery the night before, you know they're they're a habitual gambler, and all of a sudden they strike it and they win the lottery, and they, and the, everybody's like, well, we need to go have a party. Well, no, consistency would say that that sin ought not to be celebrated either, right? And so I think that that's where again a man or a woman of integrity is going to have then consistency in that it's not, just, uh, it's not just the one sin that they're pointing out. It is that they're seeking to be consistent in not celebrating anything that God says is wicked, right? And so there's all sorts of things in Romans 1. Uh, there is this emphasis on, uh, on unnatural relationships, homosexuality, but there's all sorts of other sins that are not permitted. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Like the list just keeps going on and on and on. So uh, a consistency in these things would be key. Okay, now I'm going to give another five minutes or so. You can move on to, uh, to the next one, case study two. Give another five minutes and then we'll come back and Talk about it. Okay, what do we got? Scripture passages. How would you go communicate this? Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I think that's the, a key point there is that the company does, um, they do have a claim on your time when they're paying you, right? So I've, I've alluded to it before. Others have alluded to it, other, other pastors. You know, one of the challenges that we see with lots of Christians in the business world, and I've heard this from Christian business owners, is that they're frustrated with fellow believers because you know, they're basically starting up a Bible study and doing a Bible study, an apologetics course, when they're supposed to be working for the company, 
right? And so they're, they're thankful on one hand to see a believer sharing the gospel. That's encouraging. And yeah, it's kind of like, well, no, we're not paying you to be the, to be the local pastor here on site, right? Uh, but you're right. Like, we are called to be bold witnesses. So Mark 8.38 was a passage that came to mind for me um, where, where Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay. Other, other passages, how would you communicate this? I think this one's fairly straightforward. But, sorry? Yeah, First Peter 3.15, that's the one he quoted. Yeah. Yeah, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet doing it with gentleness and respect, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and right, right there in that opportunity with whoever's, you know, the HR department, you have an opportunity to give a reason for why you are, why you're doing it, why you can't actually agree to it. In this case, you know, there's also the challenge that this person has agreed to it. You know, they've stated, yeah, I'll, I'll do it, right? And so the question is, well, am I breaking my word? I've given now my word to them. Uh, I think one, so of course we recognize that let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? You've got to mean what you say and follow through on your word. Um, on the other hand, when you take a foolish vow that then would prohibit you from obeying something that is clear in the scriptures, you need to confess that foolish, sinful vow to the Lord and to repent of it and to walk in obedience. So, um, you know, the classic example of this, I think, would be Jephthah in Judges chapter 11 where he makes this foolish vow. Uh, he says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. This is Judges 11 verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Right? And of course, who comes out? The daughter. Right? And in this case, I don't think it's, I don't think that the point that we were to take away from it, my, this is my interpretation of the text, is that you're not supposed to celebrate and say, oh, Jephthah was a man of consistency, at least he followed through on his vow. You're to say, no, Jephthah was a moron, right? He, he should have not made this vow in the first place. And in the, in the book of Judges as a whole, you see lots of these stupid decisions, right? Um, so when it comes to having to break an oath, as I say, you need to first confess that as a sin to God. Like you shouldn't have, you should be careful with your words and what you're committing to. Right, and so I think that's just a principle too in the workplace is be careful what you commit to. Like, be careful what you're signing on the dotted line, but also these verbal agreements that you have with bosses or coworkers. What is it that I'm committing to and how, is this going to prohibit me from doing, from fulfilling my obligations first and foremost to the Lord? So you've got to be thoughtful about that kind of stuff. Well, for the sake of time, um, I'm going to actually round this out and we're going to return to number three and four next week. So you have the rest of this week to kind of work through on your own if you want. Uh, case study number three, case study, study number four. We'll spend about 15 minutes next week kind of working through these. And then our topic next week is also on, uh, on finding a job. So specifically finding a job, which actually case study number four kind of will feed into that discussion. 
before we close, any other questions or comments on either of these case studies or anything that we discussed together? Yeah. Yeah. Not doing it behind their back kind of thing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so Cal- Calvin's comment there was that it, it would be right, it would be proper to go and talk to that HR department. And as I said, there's an opportunity there, right there, to bear witness for, I'm sorry, like I, I spoke too quickly and not thoughtfully. I actually can't commit to this. I, I will respect, um, you know, the company policy to work, to do my work and fulfill my work and not use that for, for times, um, you know, basically to lead a Bible study. But I cannot, in good conscience, say that I will agree not to share the gospel and tell people why they ought to follow Jesus as well, right? So I think that's, that's a good comment, Calvin. Rini? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think every Christian now, in, in all of history, has had to be prepared to lose something for the sake of Christ, right? I mean, it's very clear. Jesus says, like, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, it's worth nothing. The implication is like, you're going to have to lose things. when You've you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Uh, one passage that came to mind this morning to me was in Hebrews 11 where Moses, remember Moses, he's in, you know, working for Pharaoh, uh, and, and he's raised in Pharaoh's home, and he says, uh, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's the kind of uh, men and women of integrity that we need. Those who are, those who consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt and the treasures of Calgary, than the treasures of the world is kind of the point there, right? For he was looking to the reward. And so it requires us then to even have this future uh, future orientation in our mind that the Lord rewards faithfulness. Right? We're looking to the reward. We're looking for the well done, good and faithful servant ultimately on the last day. Okay. Well, let me just close in prayer. If you have any other questions, you can feel free to come up and talk to me after. But let me just close in prayer and then you can go get your kids and we'll get ready for the main service. Father, we thank you for uh, your word, which is so clear on many things. And for the things that are not clear, we thank you that you have given to us your spirit who helps us see things that maybe we wouldn't naturally see in your word. And you give to us the body of Christ to help us navigate these uh, difficult ethical dilemmas that we face. And so I pray that we would be men and women of integrity that you would help us to, uh, to stand firm on the truth, to be bold and courageous witnesses, and also uh, loving and gentle and patient with those who oppose us, that in all these things you might be glorified. We ask now, too, that you prepare us to gather and be with your people and celebrate together 
even the Lord's Supper together. May you be glorified in our gathering this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.